All right. Well, good morning, and thank you for joining me here today. Um, as you said, my name is Ravi Prasad. I'm a psychologist at the Stanford University Division of Pain Medicine, and I'm here today on behalf of the American Academy of Pain Medicine to present to you guys on interdisciplinary teams and managing uh, chronic pain patients. So I have nothing to disclose, and there's a couple of things I want to mention before I get started with this uh, presentation. There are 64 slides in this slideshow, and I'm certainly not going to go through every single one of the slides. Um, if there's material that I don't cover during today's uh, uh, discussion, I will cover it in several talks that I have later on in the week. Um, so the information that's in the slideshows is still relevant, but we're not going to go over every single one of the things that might be in the handouts that you have. Uh, but there's nothing that's been added to it that's not in the handouts that you have. So pain etiology, what causes pain? You know, it's certainly not as easy as Gary Larson would like for us to believe, right? Wouldn't it be lovely if a patient came in with abdominal pain, we sent them to the surgeon, they cut them open, they find a porcupine, they say, ah, here's the cause, right? Then we'd all be out of jobs, right? So it's not this easy, but we know that there are different pathways, different causes for pain. We know that there are biological pathways. We know that a person can have a fractured bone, they can have a damaged nerve. Uh, there are physical factors that can influence the onset or maintenance of pain atrophy of muscles, deconditioning, overcompensation. We also know that there are psychosocial factors. We know that coping strategies that a person uses, how effectively they use the coping strategies uh, can influence the pain. We know that psychological factors, psychological distress, so anxiety, depression, anger, frustration, these things can all affect the pain. Relationships, situational stressors, all these different categories of things can influence the pain that a person experiences. So, when a chronic pain patient walks into your clinic, of all these different things, these different etiologic pathways, which is the one that you should be thinking of when, you, when you're working with this patient? All of them, right? Trick question, right? So it's all of them. Um, and so this is what espouses the biopsychosocial model of pain. Now, I'm pretty sure that most of you guys are very familiar with this. Um, but what the biopsychosocial model of pain espouses is that when we're evaluating patients, we need to look at the whole context in which this patient's pain is experiencing, looking at all the different biological factors, um, what's going on structurally within the person. This is where your imaging studies, your physical exam findings, any labs, all this information is very pertinent. But we need to do more than just that because pain doesn't occur in a void, right? A person doesn't live in a vacuum. So we need to look at psychological and social aspects. A lot of the psychological aspects involve what's happening with the patient themselves, what's going on internally with them, what are their mood states like, are they dealing with depression, are they dealing with anxiety, um, and then social functioning. You know, pain certainly takes a toll on a person, but that toll that it takes can also affect their life. So understanding how social factors can start to influence the experience of pain. And putting all these together is that biopsychosocial model. So, to illustrate this, I'm going, to use a, I'm going to use a case to talk to you about how we put these different pieces together. You know, when I've given talks like this in the past, uh, people tell me that, you know, we like the science, we like the literature, but really we want to see how the rubber hits the road. What does this look like when you're dealing with an actual patient? Now, a lot of times I try to stray away from doing case presentations because a lot of times I hear people do things where they present stuff that's anecdotal data rather than actually empirically validated information. All the things that we did with this patient that I'm going to present to you was all based on uh, empirically validated um, work. So patient X, this is a gentleman in his mid-50s. Um, he was a police officer, uh, worked for the police department for a couple of decades, um, and he was in a motor vehicle accident while he was working on the job. So he was uh, pursuing a suspect. His car is at a high rate of speed. 
he hit a pothole, um, which jarred his car, and he started to develop low back pain um, after that incident. Historically, this person had a relatively benign history, uh, childhood history, unremarkable for abuse. Um, there was no chemical dependency issues in this person's personal history. Uh, there was no chemical dependency within the household. Um, good relationships with all family members, went on to college, did well in college, graduated from there, and excelled uh, uh, through the ranks while working as a police officer. Um, so again, no historical chemical dependency issues, but there were some medication overuse issues that I'll discuss a little bit later. Um, in recent years, there was significant stress at this person's job. So this person um, identified as gay and came out at work. And within the police department, there was a strong stigmatization associated with being gay. So he was facing a lot of workplace stress. And then also his family of origin. Um, even though he had been partnered in the relationship with this person for several years, it wasn't 14 years at the time, but even though he'd been partnered with this person for many years, the family had a very hard time with his sexual orientation. So his family of origin that he was very close to started to pull away from him, and he became very isolated from his family. So these are stressors that are occurring in the background of his industrial injury. Um, and again, he was a police officer, but because of his pain condition and lack of ability to achieve stable remission in his pain symptoms, he ended up retiring. He took a medical retirement, went on disability. So this particular individual had a pretty interesting story. Um, he was fixated on, I need to get my pain fixed so I can go back to work. Being a police officer was a very large part of his identity, and not having that job, not having that work, took a pretty significant toll on him. So he went through great efforts to try and get the pain fixed so he could return to his livelihood. Um, he and his partner um, basically took many years off of life. They took over the course of, I think, 10 years. They moved to different parts of the country, and they would live there for several years at a time trying to get appropriate medical care. So just dotted the country, went to different clinics, different places that they had researched that advertised that they take care of pain. And his goal was, again, let's get this fixed. I just want to get back to my life. So when he made his way to Florida, he saw, and no offense to Floridians, um, but when he got to Florida, he saw a physician there who told him straight to his face that patients like you, people with pain like yours, they just die. He was actually told this uh, by, a, by a physician. Um, and so you think about a patient who's had this debilitating back pain, right? Um, he's trying everything he can to try and get his situation to improve. Despite his best efforts, everything just gets worse and worse and worse. The only thing he knows about pain is what he's been educated online and what he's been educated by his uh, physicians involved in his care. And so he thought, you know what? That must make sense. This must be some sort of a fatal condition. Why else would it be getting worse? Why else would my life be falling apart like this? I must be dying. And so he took this to be uh, a death sentence. And so he literally went back to his apartment. He kind of shut the shades, and he basically got his affairs in order and was waiting for the eventuality of dying. Well, after three months of doing this, he realized, okay, I'm not dying. Maybe there's something else out here. And so he and his uh, partner ended up on the road again looking for care. So this is how they ended up at Stanford. So when he came into to the clinic for a visit, uh, by the time we saw him, he had had uh, countless different oral medication trials, opiate medications, non-opiate medications, um, he had a spinal cord stimulator implanted. Um, it was in for a while. There was a lack of efficacy. It was explanted. Um, at some point down the line, there was a surgeon who did a fusion. He had an L4S1 fusion. Um, and he was very sedentary. So this is a person who was very fit, very active. Over the course of time, he just stopped doing any activity. He said, you know, whenever I move, it makes my back hurt, which must mean that something worse is happening in my body. 
I don't want to irritate this condition, so I'm just going to stay put. So he would lay in his bed, he would sit in a recliner, and that's what his functionality looked like. So very sedentary. He wasn't driving anymore. He had slowed cognition. Uh, my 90-minute evaluation would take twice the amount of time that I usually take because of his slowed con- cognition and his difficulty responding to questions. Um, and as I mentioned before, he was on disability. So in the visit itself, his presentation, um, very shaky. He had an antalgic gait. He used, a, uh, he used a walker in the clinic, but when he's at home and in the community, he always used a motorized, uh, a motorized chair. Uh, he didn't have it with him because the battery was dead or there was some problem with it, so he was in a walker. Um, there was a significant amount of relationship strain. I had mentioned that he was partnered, at the time that he finally came to our clinic, he had been with his partner for 14 years, and the relationship prior to his pain condition was a very good relationship, a very stable relationship, but over the years, it transitioned from being a, a loving relationship between two partners to a caregiver and a patient. And so the relationship dynamics changed significantly, which caused strain for both individuals. He had a high level of catastrophizing. I'm going to explain catastrophizing in subsequent slides. Um, He had high levels of depressive and anxious symptoms. And it's understandable why depression and anxiety would ensue when a person's life has basically fallen apart around them. And his medications. So when he came to see us, he had an intrathecal pump that had uh, bupivacaine, 7 milligrams a day, morphine, 17.6 milligrams a day, fentanyl, 176 micrograms per day, clonidine, 423 micrograms per day, and for breakthrough, um, which he took every day, oxycodone, 40 milligrams, five times per day. And this was a reduction from where he was before. Um, so this is the guy who came in to see us. So if we look at his case, look at it from a biopsychosocial perspective, right? So trying to break away from just a biomedical model, and let's look and see what's going on with this guy from a biological perspective, psychological, and social. Well, certainly there are biological factors that can account for some of what's going on. There's structural changes in his body now. He had a fusion, he has hardware, and so that's going to affect his physical functioning. Certainly with all those medications, there are going to be significant medication effects as well, medication effects on cognition and other aspects of his functioning. He was grossly deconditioned. As I mentioned before, he wasn't really walking or doing much of anything. He used a motorized chair in his home and community. Very high level of emotional distress. So starting to get into the psychological part of that biopsychosocial model. So he had high levels of depression, high levels of anxiety. I typed here poor coping. That's really being nice. He had no coping. Um, This person really had no coping mechanisms to speak of. Um, He was no longer employed. He was on medical disability, as I mentioned. And he'd become socially isolated. Um, So he wasn't engaging in activities with friends. Many of the friends that he had were with the police department. Uh, He wasn't interacting with them anymore, so he had become extremely isolated. So how do we clinically address this? You know, I talked about this biopsychosocial formulation, but what do you do with this information? How are you supposed to take this and apply it in a treatment plan? Well, before we talk about this interdisciplinary treatment plan, it's important to understand pain itself. So let me ask you guys this. Does pain serve any purpose or function? Protection, right? Yeah, in its most primitive form, that's exactly what pain is. People who are nodding off, like, what? He's asking us questions. That's what I do when you nod off. I'm like, okay, 10 minutes into it, people are falling asleep. Let me get the participatory part in. So it does serve a purpose, right? It serves as a warning sign. It's a protective function that alerts us to some sort of damage that's occurring in our body, right? So let's say, for example, that I'm, I'm cooking in the kitchen on the stove. The first thing you know about me is I'm a liar because I never cook and I never go in the kitchen. But hypothetically speaking, if I did, if my hand touches the burner, 
I'm going to feel pain, right? And that's going to be a warning sign to move my hand away from the burner, right? If I didn't feel that pain, what would end up happening to my hand? It'd burn, right? It'd be a pretty catastrophic injury. So the, the pain signal itself served an adaptive purpose to alert me of some sort of damage so I could protect my body. But is that true of all pain? Is all pain a warning sign of active damage occurring that if we don't do something right now, we're going to have more catastrophic outcomes? Right, not chronic pain. And so this is where we start to get to the differences between two very broad categories of pain, acute pain and chronic pain. Um, while some of this stuff may seem self-explanatory to you, I found that there's a lot of clinicians who um, don't necessarily appreciate all the different nuances associated with these things. So I am going to go over the differences between acute and chronic pain because the treatment implications are quite significant. So in acute pain, the pain that you experience, generally speaking, is associated with some sort of active harm occurring in the body. Right? Not 100% of the time, but generally speaking, it is. So for example, my hand touching the cooktop, I feel pain, there's active damage occurring, I'm burning my hand. So avoidance of the stimulus, so moving my hand away, serves an adaptive function. It protects my body from more harm. In chronic pain, the pain a person experiences is real. Right? The, the experience of pain is absolutely real. It's not made up or imagined. But in the case of chronic pain, it's not associated with some sort of active harm occurring in the body, that if a person doesn't do something immediately, they're going to have more catastrophic outcomes. Right? And if anything, the avoidance in this situation leads to a cycle that we call a fear avoidance cycle. I alluded to it before. I'm going to spend more time talking about it later in the talk. But this is where we start to avoid some of the different things that we associate with pain out of fear of the pain itself or fear that we're going to cause more harm or injury to the body. But as we do that, as we avoid things, and think about my patient who I was talking to you about who's sitting in a uh, recliner all day or laying in bed, what's going to happen to that person's overall level of functioning and their overall level of pain as they, uh, as they avoid activity? It'll get worse, right? So in this situation, that avoidance worsens things, whereas in acute pain, it's reinforcing. Etiology, right? Oftentimes, acute pain has a very clear single source. Right? It's not always singular, but oftentimes it's a very clear pathway that's easy to identify. Right? Let's use another example. Let's say that I was running late to this presentation, running from the east wing to the west wing. I just reinforce the sense that I'm a liar because running would be exercise, and I don't exercise. But <laughs> if I was running, if I tripped, and if I fractured my ankle, right, that's going to be an example of acute pain. I have damage on my body. Right? I've got an ankle fracture. There's a clear pathway, clear cause for the pain, and it's a single cause. Chronic pain is somewhat of a different beast. Right? In chronic pain, there's a lot of unknowns. We might be able to name a person's chronic pain condition. We might say you've got neuropathic pain, you've got complex regional pain syndrome, you've got fibromyalgia. But what we can't do is we can't explain why is it that if two people have the exact same mechanism of injury, why is it that one person may go on to develop chronic pain and another doesn't? We know that there's a wide variety of risk factors that may predispose a person for pain, but a risk factor isn't the same thing as causation, right? So there's a certain degree of ambiguity with the actual causes of chronic pain. But also, it's multifactorial, right? The context in which the pain occurs is going to influence the pain itself. Different substances, different stressors, different emotional states, all these things are going to affect the overall experience of pain that a person has. And then lastly, the treatment course. Acute pain, by definition, ends. It goes away at some point in time, right? There's a fixed endpoint, and in acute pain, immobilization is oftentimes essential to a successful recovery. Right? Using that example of a fractured ankle, if I keep walking on that ankle, what's going to end up happening in my condition? 
it'll get worse, right? So immobilization is essential to my recovery. And I may be given medications. I may be given a course of short-acting opiate medications to help take the edge off my pain. But we know that these medications are only going to be prescribed for a short period of time, right? Because I've got a fixed endpoint. And so we do a cost-benefit analysis of what's going to give me the highest level of relief but still allow me to maintain the highest level of functioning in my life until such time that this condition is gone. In chronic pain, though, there's no fixed endpoint. We can't tell our patients that if they do everything that we tell them to do, they will be cured of their pain and it will go away completely. But we know that some of the things that are essential in acute pain, like immobilization, it'll actually worsen a chronic pain condition, right? Living with chronic pain, if you do too much, that's not good for you. If you immobilize, that's not good for you. But there's a fine line between doing too much and too little. And part of learning to live with chronic pain is learning how to navigate that fine line. But we know that immobilization will worsen a condition. And then medications. Now we're talking about a condition that doesn't have a fixed endpoint. So we have to exercise a lot more caution with the medications that we prescribe, uh, appreciating other factors such as uh, long-term toxicity, looking at issues like tolerance, dependence, things along those lines as they get prescribed. So we can see that acute pain and chronic pain are two completely different beasts, right? That patient, the police officer that I described to you, he had acute pain, right? That started, it started off as acute pain. He went over the pothole, developed his low back pain, but it eventually moved into more of a chronic condition, right? Now, when he went around the country and was seeing all these different clinicians to try to address his pain, what type of a treatment modality were they using with him? Were they using more acute modalities or were they approaching it more as a chronic condition? More acute, right? And so over the years that he was seeking treatment, you know, he would go to different clinicians who were all well-meaning um, and they would try different things. They would try different procedures. They would try different medications. He had a stimulator. He had a pump. All kinds of different things, none of which resulted in long-term elimination of his symptoms because he didn't have an acute pain problem anymore. It had evolved into a chronic condition. And use of that adherence to that biomedical model, not only did it not help him, but you could argue that it made his overall situation worse, right? So in his case, we needed to look at the condition as being more of a chronic condition, right? And I'm going to elaborate more on what does that look like and what does that mean. But at first, I want to take a step back and give you a little bit more of an understanding of how does pain jump from acute to chronic? You know, what are some of the different hallmarks that you can tell where you can start to say, you know what, this is starting to become more of a chronic condition rather than acute. So I want to go over some of the different hallmarks of chronification of pain. What are some of the factors to look for and what are some of the things that can uh, be predictive of chronic pain? So what are some of the key features? What are some of the telltale signs when you're working with somebody who had acute pain that, you know what, this may be evolving or devolving into a chronic pain condition? The first is a failure to respond to treatment interventions in a reasonable period of time, right? With this particular individual, you know, he started off with just over-the-counter medications. I think he got a prescription for a stronger naproxen. Uh, he was given some stretching exercises, movement, because at the time there was nothing uh, sinister detected in any of the imaging studies or his physical exam findings. They just said, you know what, it's just soft tissue issues. Um, you know, you should be fine. But he didn't respond to conservative treatment. So that's one yellow flag, right? Also, what we find with uh, chronification of pain, oftentimes the initial injury really isn't catastrophic, right? So this guy, not to minimize what he experienced, but he was driving and he, he hit a pothole. Certainly jarred him, but it wasn't that this guy had a spinal cord injury or he had uh, some sort of a more catastrophic injury. And what we often see is that the level of disability that a person has is significantly out of proportion with their actual functional impairment. So even with the hardware this guy had in his back, even with all the things going on, 
there was no reason why he would have to rely on a, a motorized scooter, a motorized car, um, chair to get around his house. So his degree of disability was significant portion with his um, actual degree of impairment. So people that start to have these different features are at a higher risk of going on long-term disability. But these are some of the signs of, of possible chronification of pain. But what are the implications of it? You know, we, we look at this as a process that, okay, this person kind of started to evolve from acute to chronic, but we need to look more broadly at the implications that this has, because it has an implication for the patient, for the clinician, and for society itself. So what are the implications for the patient um, as their condition goes from acute to chronic? Well, decreased overall functioning. You know, think back to my police officer. He did have a decreased level of functioning. He went from being um, a person on the force to basically sitting in bed all day long. Increased work or social absenteeism. Um, he stopped working. He went on disability, and he wasn't engaging in any social activities whatsoever. Increased utilization of the healthcare system. Right? He certainly had that. You know, he and his partner were moving all around the country getting medical care. Right? He had a pump implanted. He had a stem implanted, a stem explanted, all these different medication trials. So certainly very high use of the medical health care system. Increased emotional distress, understandable. And again, we saw that with him. Increased depression, increased anxiety. Increased risk for medication dependence. This guy was there. He had a very strong uh, level of dependence on his medications. He perceived if I didn't have this pump, I wouldn't be able to function. Um, and when you look at it, you'd say, well, arguably you're not really functioning. But his perception was, if I didn't have this, my function would be even worse than it is right now. I would just be in unbearable pain even as I lay down. At least this makes it somewhat bearable. So he did have strong dependence on his meds. Loss of income. Well, he's on disability now. He wasn't making as much as he's making before. And there was increased family stress because his relationship with his partner started to change. So this chronification has pretty significant uh, implications for the patient. But as clinician, it has significant impact for you as well. Now, all of us go into the field because we want to help people, right? And I've seen countless numbers of times when people fail to respond to treatment, you start to get frustrated, understandably so, because again, you want to help somebody and they're not responding to treatment. So what ends up happening? You know, a lot of times I've seen clinicians uh, do dose escalations or prescribe something else. And they'll say, you know what, I really don't think it's going to help them, but I felt helpless. I wanted to do something. They were looking at me to do something, so I, I wrote them a prescription for something. Right? Uh, but as that medication escalation occurs, to the clinician, it's, okay, well, I helped them because I gave them something. The patient seemed very gratified. But the reality is, is if we're just keeping the patient stuck in that vicious cycle of, you know, nothing is working, then we're really not helping them in the long run. We oftentimes will start to see repeated use of interventions despite a lack of efficacy. So repeated injection therapies, repeated medication trials, um, despite the fact that they were tried before and they weren't working. And after a while, you start to see denials from the carrier. We're not going to authorize the service anymore, which just enhances the frustration for the clinician as well as for the patient. But there are implications for society. Five years ago, the Institutes of Medicine put out a report highlighting the incidence of pain within this country. And they found that over 100 million U.S. adults uh, have chronic pain, right? This is still an underestimate of the incidence of pain within this country because this is just focusing on adult populations. It doesn't include pediatric populations. It also didn't include people who are incarcerated. It didn't include people in the armed forces. So this is still an underestimate of pain within the U.S. But even this number is more than the number of individuals affected by heart disease, cancer, and diabetes combined. But what's more staggering than that is the estimated cost of chronic pain. They estimated half a billion dollars in expenses associated with medical care 
and lost productivity. So pretty significant implications for patients, providers, and for society. So who's at risk for this chronification of pain? So we know that people that have had adverse childhood events occur in their lives, they're at a higher risk. And I'm not going to go into detail on the adverse childhood events because I'm going to talk about that in more detail at a, a, a presentation later this week. We know that people who have a high level of fear avoidance, catastrophization, perceived injustice, and psychological distress, that all these factors put a person at higher risk for going from that acute to that chronic side. And I'm going to focus just on these middle three categories rather than all five of them because, again, I'll go over the other two um, in later talks this week. So fear avoidance. You know, I described this a little bit earlier. This is where a person avoids certain activities out of fear of either the pain or causing more harm to the body. So in the case of our particular patient, he didn't move. He stayed immobilized out of fear that every time he moved, he was causing a worsening in his pain. Um, and in his perspective, he thought that every time I moved, I'm causing the hardware in my back to shift. And so if every time you move, if, if you have this image in your mind of your hardware shifting and it's worsening your condition, what's a normal human being going to do? They're going to avoid doing that because they don't want to cause more damage. But this was, this was his learning, but it was based on false data, right? Because the hardware wasn't shifting, but this was something that um, he had embraced. So he developed this fear avoidance cycle. And as he stops moving, you guys already answered the question before, his pain's going to get worse. Right? He's going to start to have atrophy of muscles. He's going to get weaker. And so he's going to perceive my situation is getting worse. And because it's impossible for us to be sedentary 100% of the time, he's, and what he did do is he equated the limited movement that he did with worsening of his pain condition. So this fear avoidance system, it continues to feed off of itself. And fear avoidance is strongly associated with people um, going on long-term disability. Catastrophization. Um, this is not a new concept, but it's gained a lot more recognition in the literature in recent years. What this is, is an exaggerated perception of a situation being significantly worse than it actually is. And in pain, we see three different aspects of catastrophization. We see magnification. Magnification is just that first part, the exaggeration of a situation. So let's take my, my police officer patient again. He gets up from his chair to go to the bathroom. He feels pain in his back. He says, oh my God, this is the worst possible pain I could have. The day is ruined, right? As he starts to think that, that's magnifying it, right? The worst possible pain he can have, it quite likely isn't that because every time he moves, he's having the worst possible pain he could have, right? Um, but it's magnified. You know, the day is ruined. He's already making a judgment as to what the rest of the day is going to look like, even though he doesn't necessarily know, right? So making that kind of a cognitive appraisal and, again, magnifying the situation. Rumination refers to perseveration. So in the case of my patient, he would sit there and all day long, his mind would just go over and over again about how much his life was taken away from him. He isn't working anymore. He's not contributing to society. How he's made all these efforts to try to improve his situation. He's gone to all these different clinicians. He's tried everything as well as he could. He's been compliant. Nothing is helping, right? That constant replay of that is a rumination. And that naturally engenders a sense of helplessness, right? That there's nothing that can be done. I was told by a physician that people like me go and die, right? That's certainly going to trigger a sense of helplessness, right? So catastrophization oftentimes leads, understandably, to higher levels of anxiety and higher levels of depression. And that's pretty easy to see, right? If you're feeling helpless, if you're ruminating on uh, the outcomes that you have, it's understandable how depression or anxiety may come from that. Um, Oftentimes, people with catastrophization are 
somatically hypervigilant. They pay attention to every single little thing in their body. You know, you get them to move, there's a lot of pain behavior and every little nuance of what they feel, they'll report that. Right? But what catastrophization naturally leads to is it naturally leads to the fear avoidance cycle. Because if a person perceives that every time they move, something is causing more damage, they're getting worse, that's going to naturally lead to avoidance. Right? So you start to see how a lot of these things start to feed off each other. Catastrophization, fear avoidance, these aren't things in their own neat little buckets, but they all influence one another. And then perceived injustice. We see this much more um, in the industrial world, in workers' comp. How many of you guys deal with work comp in here? Okay, so a good number of folks deal with work comp. But perceived injustice, we see a lot of this. And in the case of, of uh, my police officer, it was a sense of being wronged by the system, right? He got injured while he was on the job, and he perceived that his job pushed him out of, out of the work environment because they had issues with his sexuality. So there's perceived injustice. He had all these different cognitive appraisals, uh, whether right or wrong, as far as why he was pushed out of his job. But it was this injustice that engendered this sense of frustration, sense of anger, and those emotional states further contributed to depression, anxiety, and further worsened his pain condition. So again, we start to see all these different factors in a vicious cycle exacerbating the situation. Um, and perceived injustice, strong predictor of depression, um, also contributes to catastrophization, pain behavior. And of course, psychological distress. But all these factors that I've talked about so far are still just within the person. You know, I'm talking about what are some of the things that can lead to chronification of pain. These are all within the person. Catastrophization, fear avoidance, psychological distress, adverse childhood experiences. But we need to look at the context in which that person's pain is occurring. Are there cultural factors that can be playing a role in the chronification of pain? Are there family influences? And actually, in this police officer's case, there were some pretty significant family influences and work influences. So I had told you that prior to his injury, there was a high level of stress in his work environment related to his sexuality. So by being on work disability, he didn't have to deal with those stressors, which was a pretty significant stressor for him. And even though he wanted, there was a part of him that wanted to go back to work, he admitted that there was a part of him that felt good that he wasn't in the toxic environment that he was anymore. Right? So there was a, a work factor. But then there was also a family factor. And I had mentioned that because of his sexuality, he was more estranged from his family of origin. Well, throughout all this, um, I had mentioned that his partner had started to become more of a caregiver. And while that created problems in his romantic relationship, the family saw that, and the family loved that. And they thought, wow, you know, it's okay if he's, if he's gay, because look at how much support and love his partner gives him. And so that brought his family back into his life. And the more that he was hurting, the more sympathy they felt, the more his family of origin was around him. And so now you start to see a lot of other factors that can start to affect his physical pain experience. Right? So as we look at this, we can see that in this guy's case, if we focus again just purely on a biomedical model, we're missing out on the bigger picture. We're no longer paying attention to other family factors, work factors that can be reinforcing his continued uh, disability. We're not paying attention to the psychological factors, the learned behaviors that are leading to his compromised functioning. And again, it's going to look like continued interventions, continued medical workup that's going to get him further and further away from his desired goal of improving his functionality. Right? So I had mentioned before that we don't have a fix for chronic pain like we do for acute pain. So the approach that we take with chronic pain is a management approach. And through all the years that this patient had been traveling through the country, everybody was focused on more of a curative approach, a fix, 
but not helping him learn more about how do I manage this condition. Right? So chronic pain management, this approach is the same approach we take with any kind of health condition that doesn't have a cure. Diabetes, heart disease, asthma, we don't have cures for these different conditions, right? But we can teach a person how to manage it, and the focus is on improving quality of life and maximizing functioning. So diabetes, one of the most common chronic conditions that's out there, right? We don't have a surgery. We don't have an injection that just makes a person cured of diabetes, right? But a person would have to learn how to manage that condition. Things that fall into that are regulation of diet, checking blood sugars, getting regular exercise, taking their insulin or medications if they're insulin dependent, monitoring wounds, make sure they healed. And, you know, certainly this isn't an exhaustive list, but generally speaking, if a diabetic does the things that they're supposed to do, they can keep their condition managed, right? Well, in pain, it's the same type of thing. There's a constellation of different pieces that a patient needs to have to optimally manage their pain. And this is where the interdisciplinary piece comes in, but the interdisciplinary piece is formulated on that biopsychosocial paradigm, right? So the first piece is the medical optimization. And this is where the physician, nurse practitioner, physician assistant comes into the patient's care. And this is looking at all aspects of medical care and making sure it's optimized. Is there a role for surgery? Is there a role for injection therapies? Is there a role for um, uh, implantable therapies? Is a person taking too much medication? Are they taking too little medication? Are they taking the most appropriate medication for their condition? And this is where the physicians, physician extenders come into place. But again, it's more than just that. We need to look at physical reconditioning as well. When a person has pain in a part of their body, there's a strong tendency to guard that part of their body, to protect it, right? Some of that may be related to fear avoidance, but that natural tendency can lead to atrophy of the muscles that are affected by the pain. It can lead to overuse of other muscle groups as a compensation mechanism, or if a person's using assistive devices, it may be using those things improperly, which can further exacerbate their pain. So working with the physical therapist on reconditioning of the body. And a lot of times in chronic pain, it's not intensive workout with machines and such. It's just basic core strengthening, making sure that a person is moving uh, more appropriately. And the last piece is behavior and lifestyle modification. And this is basically everything else, right? We know that regardless of what the core cause of a person's pain is, uh, different substances, caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, their medication use patterns, their uh, sleep behaviors, their stress levels, their emotional distress, all these different factors can influence their pain. So helping a patient learn more about what are these factors and what can be done to try to influence these is where psychology mental health practitioners come in. Right? So optimal pain management, interdisciplinary management of pain involves all of these different disciplines working together. Right? It shouldn't be done in silos. It shouldn't be, okay, well, let's send you the physical therapist. We'll work on this medication next. All these things need to happen concurrently, right? And more importantly, the left hand needs to talk to the right hand, right? So the physical therapist, the, the uh, medical provider, the psychologist, all these individuals need to be communicating with one another to help advance the patient's care. If a person's engaging in all these different things individually, that's more of multidisciplinary care. Interdisciplinary care is one, again, all the, different all the different interventions, excuse me, all the different providers are speaking with one another to advance the patient's care. But it makes sense that a patient needs to do all of these concurrently, right? If a diabetic tries to manage their diabetes using one of these, just one at a time, is that going to work too terribly well? 
No. You know, they can go to you and say, hey, look, I tried exercising. I tried regulating my diet. I tried the insulin. None of these things work. Well, it's because you can't do them one by one. You have to do them all together. And most importantly, the diabetic can't pick and choose what they want to do. Right? They can't say, you know what, Splenda doesn't taste like sugar, so I'm not going to stay on this diet. Right? And I hate sweating, so I'm not going to exercise. They can't pick and that's That's me. I don't like sweat. Um, so they can't pick and choose it. They have to do all these things to keep their condition managed. So it's the same thing in chronic pain. But it's critically important that as a clinician, you embrace this as much as possible early on in the sessions that you have with the patient. As you're working with somebody and you start to see those warning signs of chronification of pain, this is when you want to take a step back and start to look at that biopsychosocial model. What are other factors that might be going on in this person's situation? What are other factors that can be contributing to maintenance of this condition or factors that can impair the person's ability to get better? And the goal of this interdisciplinary approach is to help patients learn how to live with their pain, right? Now, I've given talks like this many times uh, to national audiences. And what folks tell me a lot of times is, you know what, I appreciate this. I get the whole interdisciplinary thing. I believe in it. I know it. I've read the literature that supports it. But I don't have these resources in my community. I don't have a physical therapist who specializes in pain. I don't have a psychologist who specializes in pain. So... This is part of the reason why I spent so much time today talking more about the model, the biopsychosocial model that underpins interdisciplinary care. Because even if you don't have those treatment teams available in your locality, you can still use the same philosophies to try to help educate your patient and help them move forward in their care. You know, if the police officer I saw would have had a physician somewhere along the line um, kind of sit down and talk to him and explain to him the differences between acute and chronic pain, help him understand that. Um, his relationship issues, his depression, his anxiety, that all these things are going to feed into his pain, there's a possibility that he may not have ended up in the situation that he ended up in, right? We won't know for certain, but this is a role that clinicians can play in helping to educate patients and stop them from going on a track that's not going to be adaptive for them. So in the interest of time, I'm not going to go over all the different studies, um, but suffice it to say that these interdisciplinary approaches to pain, there's a significant amount of literature that shows that these things are effective in reducing long-term disability. Um, they also find that over the course of time, a lot of the uh, outcomes from these studies, or excuse me, a lot of the outcomes from these programs are sustainable, um, and they're cost-effective. So what can you do in your practice to try and embrace this biopsychosocial approach and try to influence interdisciplinary care even if you don't have the different clinicians in your community. Well, again, as I said, use a biopsychosocial formulation to the patient situation as soon as you see the yellow flags of chronification of pain. One of the worst things that you can do, one of the most invalidating things that you can do is start working with the patient, do different medication trials, they don't work, do different injection therapies, they don't work, then send them to physical therapy, that doesn't work, and then say, okay, I'm going to send you to a psychologist now. Because what's the message that the patient gets with that? You're crazy, right? It's all in your head. None of these things work. They should have worked, so you're crazy. And so I'm going to send you the psychologist. So the patient already comes into the psychology appointment um, feeling very stigmatized and not understanding um, how psychology can help them achieve a higher level of functioning. So what you want to do is have all these pieces working together. You want to use um, a portion of your uh, appointments with the patient to educate them, right? So... Educate them on the differences between acute and chronic pain, as I was saying before. Help them understand how their life variables can affect the pain that they're experiencing. 
you as a, as a clinician in the front lines have a lot of power to shape how a patient perceives their pain and what they look for. And I've slowly started to see a shift with a lot of um, the younger primary care physicians that are coming out where we, the referrals that we get from some of the younger primary care physicians, um, the patients are coming in with the, a stronger awareness of this biopsychosocial uh, formulation. They'll come in and say, well, my primary care physician told me that, you know, perhaps my depression may have something to do with my pain, so what can I do with that? So they're already coming in more open to the idea of, of working with uh, different treatments that aren't just biomedically based. And we've found so far, there's not formal studies that we've done yet, but so far can say that the outcomes start to look good. Because if we can catch chronic pain earlier on and help people learn to manage it, that allows people to maintain their employment, maintain their actu activity within life. So normalize the tendency to develop fear avoidance. You know, normalize that. Yeah, of course, nobody wants to hurt. But once you've done your imaging studies, once you've confirmed that there's no sinister pathology, help the patient understand it's okay for you to move. It's actually worse if you don't move. Right? It may hurt more initially, but this is part of what you need to do. Um, focus more on function rather than pain. We have an inpatient pain program at Stanford, and we actually have to get a JCO exemption where our nurses do not get pain scores on our inpatients uh, that are in our inpatient pain program because there's no utility with that. If somebody tells me I have a 7 out of 10 pain, that really doesn't tell me anything, right? Does that mean that they're only going to do a little bit less activity than yesterday? Does that mean they're going to stay in bed all day long? We focus on function. And in your visit to the patient, do that as well. Try not to focus as much on what's your pain level. And if you do have to get a pain level, if that's just part of the documentation in your center, tie it into functioning. So you told me you have a 7 out of 10 pain. What can you do with that 7 out of 10 pain? And start to track that, but constantly reinforce the functioning. Um, minimize invasive procedures, medication dose escalations if there's a lack of efficacy. You don't want to keep on repeating things that aren't working for the patient. Um, you want to communicate with your team members as best as possible. You want to reinforce um, uh, consistency among the team. You want to discourage splitting behaviors between the team members or with the patient. And I'll return to, um, to my patient, to the police officer. So I'll tell you what happened in his situation. So he came into our inpatient pain program, one where we don't do any uh, pain scores, and we weaned him off of his intrathecal meds completely. Um, he was in the hospital for three and a half weeks, um, and we weaned him off of all those intrathecal meds. Um, he went on from our inpatient program to an outpatient functional restoration program. And this is this, the one that he went to was a five-week outpatient program where they met five days, four and a half days a week, and they had um, intensive physical therapy, occupational therapy, and psych in that outpatient program. And while he was in our inpatient program, he had the same thing. Um, in our inpatient program, we have daily OT, PT. I meet with the patients every day, and we do adjustments to their medication regimen. About, I think it was a month and a half or two months after he left the functional restoration program, he had his pump explanted. And at the time that I did this slide, um, his medication regimen was Oxycontin, 10 milligrams TID, Oxycodone, 15 milligrams once or twice a month. This was when I made this slide. Um, as of now, he's not taking any opiate medications at all. Um, he's actively involved. Yeah, he did a great job. And he's actively involved in his own home exercise program. So the, the rehab program that he got from his physical therapist, he does that religiously. Um, he continues to apply the behavioral strategies and techniques that we taught him. He paces his activities. He's engaged in appropriate sleep behaviors. Um, he's driving independently now. Um, at the time that I did this, it said that he had difficulty sitting, driving greater than one hour. That's not the case anymore. Um, he's no longer endorsing any symptoms of depression or anxiety. And the biggest stress that he has right now is that his partner can't get out of the caregiver role. And so he's, he's trying to deal with that, that, you know, leave me alone, I'm fine, I can function 
you know, just fine. But it's a dramatic turnaround, and this whole process took about, it probably took about two years uh, for this transition to occur with this patient. But this has nothing to do with anything that we did as providers in his care. It has everything to do with the patient, right? Um, and so he made a lot of strides. He had to have his mind open to these different ideas. After being educated on what pain is all about for almost a decade, um, he had to be re-educated on, on the type of pain that he has. That he's got chronic pain. Uh, you know, he still has pain, but he knows that it's not going to kill him. He knows that it's something that's a nuisance. It's something that flares from time to time. And he still has pain flares, but through use of all these different, this interdisciplinary team approach and the biopsychosocial formulation, he's decreased the intensity, frequency, and duration of those pain flares, and so now he has quality of life. Right. So what I want to do is open it up for questions, but before I do that, I just want to do a quick plug for the American Academy of Pain Medicine. They have their annual meeting in Orlando um, next year. I believe it's March 15th through 18th. Uh, so I hope you guys might be able to attend that. And I'll go ahead and open it up for questions. No questions. It was that fantastic of a presentation <laughs> that you have no questions. Yeah. Thank you. And, and I didn't say that just to get applause, but thank you anyway. <laughs> but you have a question. So to help them transition back into functioning? So how do, we, how do we help people transition back to functioning? Um, basically, a lot of it is very small steps, right? Because for this guy, if, if I were to tell him when he came into our hospital program, oh, you'll be able to get to a point where you're driving again and you can tolerate sitting for longer periods of time and you'll be off all meds, that seems way too far for him to even comprehend. So we just focus on simple things. When he came into the hospital program, the goal was, let's have you not use your motorized chair at all. You can use the walker, you can use your cane, but let's not have you use a motorized chair at all. And it's just simple, small steps. And as he had success with that, that reinforced him continuing to advance. So always start with small steps and, and use those to help build. Yeah. It's, it's group-based, but it's, um, it's relatively small. In our inpatient program at the time that he was there, um, actually, at the time that he was there, we had anywhere from just him to three patients at a time. So it was never too terribly large of a group. When he went to the functional restoration program in the community, there were about five patients with him. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Um, I know that Mayo has, has done a lot of work with helping people come off opiate medications. Um, in terms of just, and I know in the VA, I know uh, there's a number of different programs in the VA system that are coming up to try to help people transition off of opiates, and those have been successful. Um, so VA, Mayo, and our program are the only ones that I'm, I'm familiar with. That's not to say there are not others out there, but those are the ones I'm familiar with. Yeah, so the, part, of, part of the reason why people come in is to clean up the opiate regimen. In some cases, we're able to get people completely off. A lot of times, because of the number of days that we get authorized, we're not able to get them completely off in the short time that we have, and so it's just getting them on more stable doses of medication or lower doses so that they can continue to taper on an outpatient basis. 
Um, but usually that's one of the primary presenting problems is needing to clean up the medication regimen. But we, we intentionally don't call it a detox program because it's not a detox program. It's a pain program, and the goal is on optimizing function. So the patient has to be willing to embrace this model of not relying just on meds, which is daunting. But this is why we, we have all the other um, interventions on either side to help them make that transition. Yes. Absolutely. So the American Chronic Pain Association um, is a wonderful organization that was created by an individual with pain for people with pain. And on the website, there's a lot of different tools that espouse all these same things, a focus on functionality, the importance of interdisciplinary care. Um, and a lot of the tools that are on the webpage are things that uh, try to reinforce self-management of pain. And so as a clinician, you can use these with your patients and, you know, have them print out some of the sheets, you know, the activity tracking sheets, things along those lines to help guide the care, especially if you don't have resources in your community. That's a good fallback. 